Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. We are in our series. We're in week two of Side by Side, this, uh, how, how the gospel of Christ triumphs over the battle of the sexes. And I'm very excited because uh, we're, we're looking at relationships between men and women in all different spheres of life, relationships between men and women. Today, we're looking at how the gospel transforms one of the most important relationships that some of us will ever have, and that is marriage. We're talking about marriage. And especially, we're going to zero in on a passage of Scripture that is so powerful, it has the potential to set people free, to heal broken marriages. I'm telling you, this passage is amazing. It, it can bring some refreshment to marriages who just desperately need refreshment. And ironically, though, it's also a passage that um, can get a lot of folks tripped up, and it can cause a lot of grief if we miss its point. So we're going to have fun today looking at this. If you weren't here last week, by the way, if you weren't here last week, you definitely need to hear the podcast. You need to go listen to that. Uh, it is truly foundational for everything that we're talking about in this series. It's really foundational for reading the rest of the Bible. You really have to understand those first two chapters of Genesis, what's going on there, to discover God's original design for humanity, to really get an appreciation for what Jesus came to do. Uh, but his original design is, is men and women created in the image of the holy God, with authority over creation, together in partnership, but no sign of authority over each other. And uh, the first mention, in fact, that we get of one human being have authority, having authority over another human being happens in Genesis 3, after the fall, as a part of the curse. Gender hierarchy is not what God said should be, but it is what God said would be when he proclaimed this curse. But good news, Jesus right? Good news is Jesus. As God re God's redeemed people, that's you and me, we're living in a kingdom, a new kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, and we're called to live by different rules. We're not called to keep propping up or perpetuating a cursed system, but rather to live as a new humanity, reconciled to God through Christ and reconciled to each other, free from the curse. This is good news. Well, here's, the, here's the hard part. We still live in a fallen world, don't we? And every single one of us were born into the curse of Genesis 3. We weren't born into a Genesis 1 world. We were born into a Genesis 3 world. Every single one of us are born into that. And the challenge of men and women doing partnership together is real. As every married couple here can attest to, I'm sure, if you've been married more than like three weeks, you can attest. It takes some work, right? The challenge is real. And so even as Christians, I mean, we're, yay, we get saved, uh, we're, we're new creatures, but we still have to intentionally push back against this power struggle between the genders. It's just part of our, our nature. It's, it's the natural state of the cursed world we live in. It's the natural state of our culture. And, and by the way, religion doesn't really help things when it comes along and it tries to perpetuate the curse of the law instead of the trajectory of the kingdom, right? It comes along and, and sets just the same old rules on you. But the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel sets us free. Truth sets us free. Men and women to serve God, to serve one another as equals. And that includes, as we're going to see today, in our marriages. 
I want to remind you about one other thing, too. We are loving the idea of, of hearing from you. We love to hear your questions. If you have any questions on this subject of men, women, relationships, gender, sexuality, whatever it has to do with any in that realm, uh, send us your questions. You can either email them right there. You can email them to questions at gchurch.net. You can tweet us if, you wanna, if, you're, if you're into that. Uh, the easiest way, I think, is use the phone app. Just download the, the phone app, the church phone app, and type on the questions for pastor button. And and those questions get sent right to me. It's really exciting during the week when I hear this little ding and I look at my phone. It comes to my phone and I'm like, question. And so that's been exciting. So I want you guys to keep the questions coming. Go ahead. Don't be embarrassed. There's no question too dumb or weird or out there. Go ahead. Ask the questions. And uh, we're coming up on October 7th or 8th, whatever is that Sunday, uh, we are going to have Q&A Sunday. And Mel and I are both going to be up here. And uh, we're going to answer as many of those questions as we possibly can. You don't have to attach your name to it if you're not proud of your question. That's okay. Uh, so it can be anonymous, but uh, it's going to be good. Also, I'm told there's a fourth way to uh, give us a question uh, for those of you who are not as digitally inclined. Apparently, there's this method called writing things on little strips of paper. <laughs> you can write things on little strips of paper. Uh, it's weird. You use a pen or a pencil, I think. Um, and then you fold that, and you can put it maybe in the offering, or you can put it in the prayer box that we have out in the foyer or something like that. Anyway, it'll get to us. You write a question, and we want to we know about it, however you do it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. With that in mind, let's open up our Bibles today to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, chapter 5. That's where we're headed. It's going to be good. Ephesians 5, where wives are called to submit, and husbands are told they're the head. Isn't that exciting? All right. Now, as we're going to see, there, there's a lot more happening than it might appear at first read. Uh, but I'm telling you what, this scripture is the recipe for a gospel-centered marriage instead of a curse-centered marriage. Just trust me on this. Let's start in verse 22, just for fun. Um, verse 22, see what the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And let's see what he says to the married couples in the church of his day. In verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So there we go. Plain as day, black and white there. Uh, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you, some of you are like, this is why Christianity is out of date, right? This is why I don't like religion. This is offensive, typical male-dominated stuff right here. All this religion trying to keep the woman down, right? That's what it looks like. Now, here's one thing to keep in mind. One thing to keep in mind is in, uh, in, in Paul's day, his audience there in the first century, they would have read this and been like, well, duh. That's the way, that's the way society works, right? That tells something we don't know, right? Women wouldn't have been shocked by this. Uh, and, you know, they would say, of course, of course you submit to your husband. That's, that's the way society functions, you know? It's like flour tortillas are better than corn tortillas. That's, that's a given, right? I mean, unless you're dieting and you've got to eat corn for some reason, you know? Uh, but otherwise, flour. I'm getting off topic. Um, so this would have been just normal information to them. Now, I have to admit, a lot of churches, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pulling a fast one on you here, because a lot of churches will intentionally start the story right here. Uh, because this frames the conversation according to a very specific bias. But the truth is you can't start here. You can't start in this verse. This verse, did you know this verse doesn't even have a verb in the Hebrew right there? It doesn't have the verb submit. It, in the Hebrew, it literally says, wives, 
to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So that's interesting. So where do we get, where do we get this word submit? We just make that up? Well, it's an it's a interesting quirk of Greek grammar. If you have a sentence that uses a verb, you don't have to use the verb again in the next sentence. So what we need to look at is the sentence that comes before this one. And that is where we get into some revolutionary information here. So let's back up to verse 21. And here Paul blows their minds. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord, for example, right? Submit to one another. Wow. So at first, it, you know, if you, if you start in 22 there, it sounds like he's given wives just a very special command. It's just for them. It turns out wives are being called to do here what actually everyone is being called to do in the kingdom. Men and women. Men, women, husbands, wives, children, everybody. Submit to one another. You know, the, the real argument between, uh, among Christians when it comes to marriage the argument really isn't who gets to be in charge. That's not really the argument. It's whether or not husbands have to obey this command to submit. Right? Either way, wives are told to submit. That's not the new information. But are husbands going to obey this command to submit? It's not about who gets to lead, you see? It's about mutual submission. Amen? Amen. All right, it's quiet. I'm going to assume that's just your wheels really turning here. Okay, stay with me. Wait, there's more. We're going to look at verse 23, and here's where things get also interesting. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Well, there you go, Scott. Come on, right there. That's plain as day. If you ask me, in fact, now, Scott, is the husband the head of the wife? I would say yes, absolutely. It is clearly stated in Scripture, clearly. But I'm guessing we might be talking about two different things. And the reason for that is because we're not first century Greek speakers, okay? When we use the word head, it can mean a lot of different things. It means this, you know, round thing on top of my shoulders. Uh, it can also mean uh, the head, like a head of a river, right? The, the, that little trickle that begins the whole uh, river. That's the source of that whole big river. It can mean the part of the hammer that, you know, comes in contact with the nail. But the, the way we usually use head very often metaphorically, is authority over. Isn't that right? Authority over. In the Greek, it's this, it's this Greek word, kephale. Did you know in the Greek it has nothing to do with this? They use this in a totally different way. It doesn't mean authority over. They use the metaphor in a very different way. Uh, I don't know if you remember, a long time ago we had a series, but we talked about this fun Greek word, splagnon, means the guts. And it's their word how we would say, uh, I, I love you with all my heart. But in their system, they didn't think of like the passions living right here in your, you know, this organ that's pumping the blood. They thought of your passions in your guts. So they used this word splagnon, right? I love you with all my guts. That's the way they would say it. <laughs> and that's, you know, so if they said something about the heart, we would say passions, but they were meaning something very different. So it's kind of a similar thing. When we talk about the head of a company, when we talk about the head of a team or the head of an army, we're usually talking about the one who has authority over. He's the head, the head of the company. It wasn't used that way in the first century. In fact, we have first century writings that talk about the head of an army, referring to a battle, the head of the army. And it, who's the head of the army? It's not the general. 
It's not the one with authority. The head of the army is used to refer to the first soldier to die. It's the one brave enough to lay down his life in like a no-win situation. That's the head of the army. He's the one who lays down his life to save others. He's the one who lays down his life to save others. All right, wheels are clicking, right? Now, it gets interesting. The text says the husband's the head of the wife. So as Westerners, we automatically go, yes, I have authority over my wife. I'm in charge. Woo! And that is us exposing our gender power struggle, right? That's us reading Genesis 3, the curse, into the text. Rather, the husband is the first to lay his life down as Christ laid his life down for us. And as we continue to read here, continue to just notice what he's saying about Christ. It's not the husband is head of the wife as Christ uh, is in charge of the church. It lays his life down for the church. The husband is the head of the wife as the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, understand, Paul knows Greek. He's very good at Greek, all right? In other writings, other scriptures, he talks plenty about authority. He talks about leadership, right? Especially in scriptures, he'll talk about um, submit to the authority of your governments or the authority of those elders in the church or th- things like that. Here, he very skillfully avoids all these words. Jesus talks about authority sometimes. Jesus uses authority language, but it melts away when he talks about headship. Whenever he mentions headship, Jesus, this authority language melts away. Authority and headship are never part of the same conversation with Jesus. It's a very interesting thing. Now, having said that, let's say, let me suggest, maybe there are two ways of of viewing this verse. Uh, Maybe there's two ways of interpreting this passage. Let's look at the two possibilities of, of this headship thing. The first way is the one kind of we're stressing today, that male authority, it definitely was a cultural reality in their day, but Paul is teaching these married couples to live in a new way. It redefines the role of the husband. It redefines his, his motive. Instead of the authority being a, the authority figure to his wife, now he's, re-seeing him, he's seeing himself different as, as the loving, life-giving support to his wife giving himself to her completely as Christ gave the church, empowering her as she is submitting to and empowering him. But let's say there's another possibility to to looking at this. Let's say male authority wasn't just real in Paul's day, but it's still universal. And so husbands should continue to exercise authority just as Jesus did. They should continue to exercise authority. So if you say, I still think the husband being the head of the wife means he does have authority. I will say, okay, I will, I will ride that train with you as long as you ride it all the way to the Jesus station, okay? And, and here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, okay, Mr. Husband, this is what authority looks like. Authority looks like you lay it, it means you lay it down and you die in the service of those you love. That is what Christ-like authority looks like. You lay it down and die for those you love. So the interesting thing is, in the end, regardless of whether we lean toward door number one or door number two, we find ourselves walking into the same room. Either door, 
You've walked into the same room. You could put it this way. Either way, marriage should end up looking and feeling and functioning in mutual submission. Either way, either way you want to read this, it ends up looking the same. It looks like mutual submission. It looks like power and privilege laid down. So whether or not you believe that husbands are, you know, just divinely granted authority by virtue of their maleness, that authority gets laid down if we're going to act like Christ. Let's keep reading. In verse 24, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So submission, again, is something we're all called to do. But here's the cool part. For wives, specifically when they do that, there is a special motive. There's a special purpose when they are doing it. They are reenacting a kind of reverence for Christ. They're demonstrating it to the world. So no longer is it just part of the culture. You've got to submit to your husband because everybody does it. Now there's special meaning. When you submit, you are reenacting a reverence for Christ. And it's not because of any hierarchical power struggle between the genders or, or some innate ability that you don't have because you're female. Now, this is, as a wife, this is what I do to honor Christ. So this isn't a new command for them, but there is new motive. He's given them a new motive for doing this. And then he goes on in verse 25, and he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here again, we kind of got to jump into our, our spiritual time machine, TARDIS, and go back in time and look for first century married couples. Reminding wives that to submit may not have been anything shocking. They would have been like, that's just part of the fabric of culture. But telling husbands to love their wives, that sounds normal to us, but wait, that was countercultural for their day. Very countercultural because love was not part of the everyday experience expectation on the part of husbands. People didn't marry for love. Wives didn't marry for love. They usually didn't have a say in it. They were usually given to a husband by their father. And the husband didn't marry for love. He married for convenience or for power or for money or for something. Or, you know, she looked like she could have a lot of kids or something. There, you know, there, there were, it wasn't love. That wasn't why you, you got married. And so wives were considered the husband's property, um, the, their possession. It was, it was his duty, as far as his duty went to her, it was to make sure she was well-fed and provided for so that she could keep making children. That was pretty much the extent. But love, not in the first century. Now we're seeing, now we're seeing the trajectory of the kingdom come into play here. It's starting to take shape. That's what's challenging his first century audience here. It's pointing to a, a greater reality than they could probably even fathom at that point. Now, as we sit here today in 2018, reading these scriptures, you might have come up with a good question, and that is, why aren't wives told to love? Why aren't wives told to love? And the reason is because real, self-sacrificial love involves the laying down of power. Real love involves the laying down of power. And wooden women did not have any power in the first century to lay down. There's no power for them to lay down. The husbands did, and that's exactly what they are told to do, to love, to lay down their power. 
just like Jesus, who, who had all the authority. Remember in Philippians 2, it talks about that beautiful poem where he had it all. He had, he had the authority, he had the privilege, and he laid it down. He didn't hold on to it. He became lower than the angels, a servant to man. How humble can you get? That is what Jesus did. He laid his life down, humbling himself like a servant. So church, that is our model. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our model. All, the scriptures point us to Jesus. He's our model. So those who have privilege are called to lay it aside. That is the way of agape love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So we're getting this picture of what Jesus has done for us. These, these spiritual things that Jesus does for the church, he's trying to help husbands understand, husbands in that first century especially. This is, they're like, okay, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, what you're asking me to do, Paul. Husbands, you're to see as a model for how you are to treat your wife. He's not telling husbands, think of yourself like a god and she's a mere mortal. That's not the point, right? The point is it's laying down your power for her, laying down your privilege as Christ did for the church. You see the things he keeps saying over and over, just to make sure we get it. It's the, it's the ways that Christ lays down the power. It's, in nowhere here is any authority language. He doesn't use the word for authority. Paul knows the word for authority. He doesn't use it. These are Greek words that he, he could have used for authority, but he doesn't do it. Now, in this moment of culture that Paul is writing within, men had the authority, right? Men had the authority. It was a very male-dominated, patriarchal culture, no doubt. Men got to study uh, Torah from an early age. That was a privilege they had. Uh, they were literate. They learned to read. Most women were not literate. Uh, to, to be a woman meant pretty much from dawn to dusk you were working around the house or doing something. You were doing work for your family. There wasn't a lot of time for Torah reading and having deep philosophical discussions with your friends as the men did, right? It would say, there would be a place usually in every village where the men got to come to the square and have these deep spiritual discussions. And, and women did not get to participate in that. They didn't. So here Paul's saying, yeah, but guys, Christ nourishes the church, what does he do? He washes her. He makes her holy. He doesn't dominate the church. What does Christ do with his disciples? He gets on his knees and washes their feet. This is our Jesus. This is our Savior. He washes their feet. Husbands, lean into this relationship, is what Paul's saying. Lean into that relationship with your wife. Make her a fellow disciple of Jesus, right? Allow her holiness, her, her spirituality to flourish. Help her to flourish. Remember, we're talking about a, a wife that probably did not ever learn to read. So help her know what the scriptures say so she can be, what? A fellow disciple, right? We want fellow disciples, we don't just want a religion of men and the, the women are, you know, making us coffee and tea sandwiches or something. We are fellow disciples, right? 
They are getting to learn. This was the scandal of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning. And what did he say? It shall not be taken from her. She's a disciple. This is the kingdom where we fully participate in our discipleship together. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. It just gets better and better here. Hold on. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, husband's like, whoa, come on. I mean, you told me to love her, like, feel warm feelings. Okay. Love her like my own body? Come on. What husband didn't take care of himself when he needed it? You know what I'm saying? We, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body. Lord knows I do that too much. Just as Christ does the church, for we, men and women, are members of his body. We are members of his body. So this is love. I need to learn. Now, this applies to us today, guys. I need to learn to love my wife the way I love my own body. If I'm thirsty, I get a drink. I don't wait around. If I'm hungry, I get way too much to eat. If, if I feel the need to lie down, I lie down. I'm attuned to what my needs are, aren't I? I never guess. I wonder if I'm hungry or not. I'm attuned. I purposefully respond. And that right there is actually a great example of love. I didn't put this on the screen, but this is a good definition of love. To be attuned to what someone else's needs are and to purposefully respond. To be attuned to what someone else's needs are and purposefully respond. Don't just feel warm feelings. Purposefully respond. That's love in action. Verse 31, he continues, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother to be united with, to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul is such a genius here. Paul is quoting from Genesis. This is a quote. That's why it has the little quotes up there. He's quoting from Genesis. This is, for him, this would have been an ancient scripture that everyone knew. He's quoting a passage that was written about marriage. But now he repurposes it to become infinitely more meaningful in light of what Christ has done for us. Christ, what did he do? He left heaven. He left the Father to save those he loved. And we of his kingdom get to act that out. We get to act that out. Isn't that beautiful? And he even says, this is a profound mystery. No truer words were spoken when it comes to marriage, right? Marriage is a mystery. But I am talking about Christ in the church. He's making sure we get this. So in our marriages, in our marriages, if, if we live these marriages out the right way, we have an opportunity to be a living demonstration of Christ's love. It's more than just you two. It's, just, it's more than just you, about you and your spouse, whether you're getting along, if everything's okay. We are a living demonstration of Christ's love. When our marriages reflect the liberation of the gospel, that is a testimony to the world. We're a walking testimony just by submitting to each other. That teaches the world something. That tells the world something. It proclaims something. It puts Jesus on display. Verse 33 says, However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husbands. So husbands here are told to love because love is the laying down of power. It's the laying down of power and privilege. The wife is told to respect, to honor the husband, because his laying down of, of power is really only fruitful if the wife doesn't take advantage of that, right? Right? If, it's a, if there's a mutuality going on here, 
if she doesn't take advantage of that, but rather honors what he's doing as well. So there's this mutual, there's this, all of a sudden, we, there is a, a living undoing of the old power structure. The curse has got cracks in it now. And it's through your marriage. In a beautiful and Christ-like marriage, wives love and submit to their husbands, and husbands love and submit to their wives as an equal partner, a co-ruler, as in Genesis 1. Now remember, this is, this is important as we talk about, I know we're using a lot of different terms here. We're called to submit to each other. In the context of marriage, I'm talking about marriage, it's not to submit to one another's authority. I'm not submitting, I don't submit to Melissa's authority, and she doesn't submit to my authority. We submit to one another's giftings. Gifting. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. That, what I mean is I, I recognize that the gifts that God has given my spouse, in those areas, I support and I submit to them, I celebrate them, I, I encourage them. You know, if she's better at the finances and paying the bills, let her have it. Go, go for it. She oversees that. If I'm better, I would do it. Uh, if she's better at schedule management around the home, she does that. And my spouse recognizes the gifts and talents that God's given me, and she supports my lead in those areas. And on big life decisions, I'll tell you, we, we lead together. We, we come to those decisions together. We pray, and we decide together. And often, both of us will have the, the, same, the same feeling. That's awesome. Uh, sometimes, we come together, and you pray about something, and one of you defers. You just defer to the other who maybe they feel a stronger leading from God. You know, there are things where I'm like, well, sweetie, I don't really feel anything. So if you're feeling the Holy Spirit say it, let's do it, right? Or they might feel a stronger passion for it. This is just something I really, really feel strongly about. And, I'm, and if I'm sort of like, I don't really feel that strongly about it, go, go for it, right? Or, or vice versa. If it's something like Please let me. She'll let me, right? Usually. <laughs> but usually it's someone has a stronger leading or stronger passion for that area. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's never about competition. Don't let it get to be about that. It is definitely never about who has what, what gender. It's about who's got the gift. Who's got the gift? Who has a passion for it? Who's better at it? Who feels more strongly? Who's hearing from the Lord? That, that's... By the way, I love this. I just wanted to show you. Everybody's seen uh, this icon. Everybody know, you know, if you're looking for the restroom, you've probably seen this. Um, and and we, now know, we now know it was never a dress. <laughs> it was always a cape. I love that. <laughs> Blessed is the man who, who has an Ezra Konegdo by his side, right? Praise God. Um, Okay, I know I'm laying a lot on you today. I, I want to take a slight detour and talk about a, a, a related subject just for a second. Uh, it's a question that I sometimes hear come up or people will ask me or I'll just hear uh, kind of floating around in some circles. Um, I might be poking at it religion a little bit this morning, so it's okay. Uh, just, that's, just, that's just pride poking at you. Uh, but the question goes something like this. What's the role of a husband as the spiritual leader of the family? And how should his wife support him in that? What's the role of the husband as a spiritual leader in the family? 
This comes from the idea um, in some circles that the husband has been given a special role or authority that is unique to him in the family, and a wife's role is to support him in that and come under his uh, covering. Sometimes you'll hear the word covering. When it comes to spiritual matters, he's responsible for those decision-making. When it comes to spiritual well-being of the home, he's he's the one who kind of leads the way. And it, it, this really grows out of a classic patriarchal tradition more than any particular scripture. Uh, you, sometimes you'll hear husbands being encouraged to take the lead. Come on, husbands, step up, take the lead. Um, and sometimes it's very well-meaning because, you know, you just got a deadbeat husband and you're just saying, dude, come on, you know, step up. Um, or sometimes you'll, you'll assert your spiritual authority. Assert your authority, husbands. You'll hear wives encouraged to come under the covering of their, their husbands. Come under the covering. It's a fascinating phrase which is just found nowhere in Scripture, I have to say. But, but the suggestion to the wife is that somehow, as you live in submission to his authority, that as long as you have like the right kind of like flowchart of authority working in your house, you'll have a certain kind of protection. Now, you could argue some elements of this, uh, you know, if you're coming from a situation where he used to be horrible and and not serve God, and now he's trying to serve God, some elements of this might be, you know, a, a good step or, or, or harmless. But one of the phrases that I think is really concerning and, and we should push back on is the description of the husband as the priest of the home. I don't know if you've heard this, but the husband is the priest of the home. The priest uh, is, a, is a mediator between God and people a mediator between God and people, especially people who don't have direct access to God. So I hear priest of the home, and I gotta tell you, the side of my face starts twitching a little bit. Um, uh, And again, it stems from this idea that the husband plays the unique role of speaking to God on behalf of the family uh, and for speaking to the family on behalf of God, and and that he's the go-between, the way a priest would function in a religious paradigm. That's what a priest would do. The problem is the New Testament teaching breaks that religious paradigm apart. It teaches the, the priesthood of all believers. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that, that all Christians, male and female, married and single, are priests to each other and representatives of Christ to the world. Over in James 5.16 tells us that we are even called to confess our sins one to another, one to another, that means back and forth. Confess our sins one to another. There's not a special class of priest who gets to hear all the sins, but they don't have to say theirs out loud. We're saying them one to another. And, and we are the, the priesthood of all believers, right? So we are doing this for one another. That's, that's why I'm not a priest. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm more, more of a coach, right? I'm, I'm here to, to help you, but I'm not your go-between between you and God. I don't speak to God on your behalf. I mean, I pray for you. But you don't come to me with what you need me to tell God. And I don't come tell you when God wants to speak to you. He speaks to you. We got the Holy Spirit. He's loose. Right? The Holy Spirit is in each one of us. You understand what I'm saying? I am praying for you. I didn't want that to come out wrong. (laughs) You're on your own. No. Um. But in these scriptures, there's no gender attachment to any of this. There's no gender to any of this. We're brothers and sisters in a family. And so we can be priests to each other. The one place where it does talk about us having a mediator, in 1 Timothy, it tells us that Jesus Christ alone is our high priest. He is the one who intercedes to the Father on our behalf. 
So Mel's not waiting for me to intercede to God on her behalf. She gets to talk. She gets to pray. Jesus is her high priest. Now, that's why this kind of goes beyond. It's not just a little academic argument that I'm just picking on here. This spiritual leader thing, and the reason why I'm bringing this up, it's because it can really create real damage if we get this wrong. It can. There's so many scenarios if we follow this line of thinking that can blow up a marriage. Often you'll have a wife. Some of the things that we've come across, Mel and I, when we're talking with people, we'll, see, we'll have a wife, and she's maybe just the more spiritually mature of the two. Anybody know these couples, right? She's more mature. Maybe she has, she's just kind of more intuitive. She's more sensitive to the spiritual well-being of the family. Maybe the husband's just less spiritually tuned in. He's got a lot of things going on. And several things can happen in this situation if it's not handled correctly. Uh, first, maybe she honestly believes the husband should be the spiritual leader. And so she's kind of frustrated, right? She believes she needs to try and figure out ways to force him to step up. Assume the spiritual leadership role where maybe he's not gifted. And she might feel frustrated being in a marriage where it's like, well, now nobody's stepping up. And meanwhile, he feels like a loser because she keeps reminding him that he's not taking the lead, right? That's the recipe for a happy marriage, isn't it? Uh, and, he, and, and, and he's left frustrated because of this unrealistic expectation of him operating outside of his gifting. There's another way this can work out, too. In a marriage such as this, she might be willing to take the lead. She might, man, I'd love to take the lead, but maybe he won't let her. Maybe uh, he's honestly just trying to be scriptural. He's read these scriptures, and he says, no, I'm supposed to be the, the head, so I need to take the, the lead here. But what he'll end up doing is stifling what she could be bringing to the table, this incredible gift that God has given him. And he could disallow her, her giftings that God has given her because of a misplaced patriarchal standard. So either she sadly just resigns herself to, to a home where nobody's going to be partnering with God's leading, or she resorts to what's basically kind of like manipulation in order to take the lead while making the husband think he's in charge, right? You ever know this couple? <laughs> you know the couples where the, the wife insists the husband's in charge, he's the one, he's, he's, the, he's the priest of the home, while she's the one with the obvious gift of communication and decision-making. And I always want to tell her, you know we're on to you, right? Right? <laughs> You can say he's the leader all you want, but he's not as gifted in this as you are, and that's okay. That happens in different marriages. I don't think any of these scenarios are God's best. This is not God's best. Romans 12.8 Romans 12, says that the, the gift of leading, did you know it's one of the gifts of the Spirit? It's one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit decides and discerns who gets, who should get. There is a gift of leading. And nowhere in there did it say to men, a gift of leading. It's just not there. So if the wife is the one who's better wired with gifts in certain areas within the relationship, I, she should just gladly take the lead in that area. Her husband should joyfully uh, encourage her in that and thank God for giving her the vision and the passion for that thing. In some areas, it may be the husband who is just more spiritually mature in these things. That's great. But we let the Holy Spirit decide and we partner with him. We partner with the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, that right there will save a lot of you a lot of grief if you don't let religion 
trap you into an endless frustration of operating outside your gifting. Religion will trap you. And you'll hear from good, well-meaning people that will just heap the condemnation on you more and more. Because Christ has come to do what? Set us free from the curse of Genesis 3. He set us free. Free to function, free to flow in all of our unique giftings, our anointings, and they have nothing to do with gender. Now, I'll tell you the picture that ultimately rocks even more than either of those things is when a husband and wife in shared partnership are both coming together with their eyes wide open to what would be best for the spiritual well-being of their family. When they're working together, that rocks. No one shirking the responsibility of interceding for their home. Both of them walking it out together. Walking out together. So we're not saying to, to men or women, hey, if you're spiritually immature, just kick back and you know, let them handle it. That's not what we're saying. We should all be seeking to grow. All be seeking to be discipled, to grow side by side with our spouse. Side by side. That's the goal. And look, this is good news. If you're here and you're a single parent, a single mom, there's no reason for you to ever feel any condemnation that, well, now your home can't have a priest. You know, I'm sorry, because you don't have a man around. You do have a priest, you have a mediator, and his name is Jesus. Amen. You have the same priest and mediator that we all have, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the only covering my family needs over us. And I am so blessed to be married to an incredible, humble, strong, wise woman with whom we don't strive and scheme to figure out who's going to take the lead. Truly, truly I can say, as transparent as I possibly can be, we spend every day trying to outsubmit each other. We try to outsubmit each other. We have learned in our 20 years of marriage to defer to one another in areas of giftings. And that whole, you know, I'm going to put my foot down thing, I got to tell you, that is just foreign to us. It doesn't happen in the Hale home. Those words are never spoken. Um, yeah, we talk about things. You know, we'll even argue our case. Well, here's what, you know, what's going on. We pray and we submit to the leading of Christ. We support each other. I know that Mel is my biggest supporter and I am her biggest cheerleader. Now, do we ever get it wrong sometimes? You bet. Do we make the wrong decision in hindsight occasionally? Yes. Do we sometimes bicker and, you know, argue a little too much and then I have to, we have to come together so I can apologize? <laughs> yes. We're not weirdos. Yeah, nine times out of ten, I was, I was the jerk. Um, we're not weirdos. We're human beings, right? We're, we're passionately passionately in love, but we're also passionately opinionated about things, right? So it gets exciting. Uh, but I'll tell you what, in our home, Jesus is in charge. We never forget that. We never forget that. My maleness is never the deciding factor. That never comes into the conversation. <laughs> the only authority, in fact, I'll say this, the only authority either of us ever exercise is over the devil and our children. And sometimes those are hard to distinguish. <laughs> But that, that's, where you, that's where you take authority. 
right? I'm just kidding, boo. We're trying, we spend every day working together. We never forget that we're a partnership. We're a partnership in this. We try to outsubmit each other and defer and celebrate each other's giftings. I know, now I know what some of you might be thinking. Some of you are thinking right now, uh, you know, Scott, this sounds great. It sounds great, but you know what? At the end of the day, you know what I'm gonna say? Somebody's gotta be the boss. At the end of the day, somebody's gotta make that decision. I agree. That boss in my house is Jesus. At the end of the day, Jesus makes the decision. I'll tell you this also. In 20 years of marriage, the Holy Spirit has never told Mel and me two different things. He's not the author of confusion. You can trust him to have the final say in your marriage. I want to finish today with the words of Jesus himself. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, This is so beautiful. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. In the world, world, he's saying authority means I'm in charge. He's using authority language here. I'm in charge. What does he say? Not so with you. I'm going to say that again. Not so with you. Will you just say that with me? Not so with you. This is what authority looks like within the body of Christ. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus redefines authority. He redefines what it looks like and how it gets worked out. Husbands and wives... Take each other by the hand. Dare to lead together. Dare to, to, to submit to each other. Dare to empower each other. Walk side by side. Let Jesus be the priest of your home. I hope today, I'm praying, I've been praying all week, that this wouldn't just be an exercise in scriptural academics, but that this would bring some real freedom to some of you who are wondering how to have a more Christ-like marriage, how to let Jesus be the head of your home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for sending us Jesus. Lord, we come to you as broken people, people who were born into this Genesis 3 world, the world of power struggle and endless arguments over who gets to be in charge. We're people who have sought our identity and our right to lead instead of our freedom to serve. We repent. We repent. We ask for your spirit of peace to knit us closer together, to give us a fresh appreciation for one another, a fresh love and a willingness to submit to our spouse. Lord, give us the courage to think beyond the way of religion and to walk in the way of Jesus. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to help each other become more and more like Jesus. In the name of
of the one who became a servant of all, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.